Well, turn with me in your Bible to Acts 18. Acts 18. And uh, our text for examination this morning will be verses 1 through 4. Acts 18, verses 1 through 4. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me out of respect for the Word of God. Acts 18, beginning at verse 1. Here's the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant Word of the living God. After these things, He left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, he came to them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working. For by trade, they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. You may be seated. We do have a competitor with the Word of God this morning. I realize that. But it's part of God's creation, and it won't be a distraction to us if we think upon the Word. You know, one of the things that I so appreciate about the Apostle Paul is his deep sincerity. There are often in Paul's writings, and believe me, we catalog this as often as we can and take notice of it. He's a man of letters. He is a man who is a penetrating, deep thinker. He was a man of logic and of reason. He was a man who understood the depths of the mysteries of God, even in his own humble way, said more than the rest. He was a devout man of faith. But one of the things that strikes me often about his writings, and you will find these statements in sort of offhanded ways here or there in his letters, where a moment of candor opens up a window of insight into his soul and teaches us to think about Paul as a real human being and not as a superhero. And one of those things I am thinking of is a statement that he made in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, when he said, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Think about who he said that to. He said that to the Corinthians. He said that to these Corinthians. And as he writes a letter to them, having departed from them, and is now several months outside of their company, he reflects back to the season of ministry that he partook in there for about 18 months. And what he says to them is, My first entrance unto you, O Corinthians, was one which did not feel victorious at all. In fact, it was one that was fraught with great fear and trembling and weakness. And what you want to discern in that language, the apostle is not speaking about his physical condition. He's not saying that when he came to Corinth there and he took up his ministry that he was somehow in need of medical attention due to some physical affirmity. When he speaks of being weak, he's speaking about his mental state of mind. He's thinking about his own um, inability He is considering how he is insufficient for something that lay before him. He's weak. And it's not just that he's weak. There's a physical manifestation almost to it. He said he was trembling. He came to them with much trembling. And the word there in the Greek is the same word that we get our word tremors or shakes from. 
in every way, the Apostle says, as he walks those Corinthians down memory lane to describe to them what it was like to bring the gospel to Corinth, he said it was a task which he knew he was not adequate for in any way whatsoever. And part of that sense of weakness and fear and inadequacy had to be that lingering thought in the back of his mind that he has been nothing but a frustration and failure. Think about this second missionary journey. All along the way, wherever the apostle went, he encountered the most severe and bitter opposition. In Philippi, he was jailed and beaten. In Thessalonica, he was kicked out of town. In Berea, he had to leave in the middle of the night out of despair for his life. When he went to Athens, the people who listened to him ridiculed him as a birdseed eater intellectually. In fact, as he looked back over his shoulder and forward towards the mission field that was in front of him here in Corinth, what he did not feel is the wind at his sails. In fact, it felt like a spiritual headwind. What he had known was bitter frustration and failure throughout this whole journey. And oh, by the way, as he arrives into this great bustling city of antiquity, he's all alone. There's no co-workers. There's no friends. There's no family. There's no church. There's just him. And it's his duty here in this city to raise up a gospel mission in a church from scratch. He is to lay the groundwork and build the kingdom of God with his own hands, and it's just him. And so, this morning, people of God, I think that's an important insight, a perspective to take with us as we come into our text here this morning, because Luke doesn't share with us any of that insight which Paul would later give by way of retrospective. And I think it's quite critical for us this morning, as we come into the text, to have that perspective, that lens, as it were, to see what he does, and to notice what Paul does in this moment of antipathy and sin of feeling weak and and, uh, with trembling. What does he do in the face of a daunting task? He has a call from God to plant a church and he has no strength to do it in himself. That's the mindset of a church planter. That's the bipolarity that every church planter wrestles with. God gave me something to do. It's not possible for me to do it. How in the world can this ever succeed? With that thought, it's all the more important that we uh, labor over these verses then this morning and see the intentional strategy that the Apostle Paul pursued in order to raise up this gospel mission while he's in this situation of solitude and weakness. And so what we see here, what Paul did by way of summary sketch, is he arrived in Corinth, he intentionally sought a place to stay, He intentionally sought a job. He intentionally built up a community of workers. And then he intentionally preached the gospel to build the kingdom of God. That's what he did. And so that means this morning, people of God, that gospel ministry must take up residence somewhere. Gospel mystery, if it is to flourish and to be sustained, must take up residence somewhere. Multiply co-workers and reach people for Christ. That's the call. That's what we learn. It works either for church plants or existing congregations. 
three parts to this, the city, the aim, and the process. Let's think about the city. I don't want to spend too long here because you don't need to be a walking encyclopedia when it comes to Corinth. What you need to be able to do is run your fingers or your fingertips upon the wall so that you can get a sense and a feel for what the paint looked like. That's all you need. You need to have a sense of what it felt to be in this place, in that moment, and to incarnate there. One of the things you want to think about with Corinth was its location. It was a storied city of antiquity in ancient Greece, but it was only about 50 miles from that which would have been the flashpoint or the cutting edge of all of Greek culture, which would have been Athens. It's only about 50 uh, miles down the road. If the apostle had wanted to put on a boot and a rucksack, he could have got there in three days by walking. If he wanted to get there quickly, all he had to do was pay the fare and jump on a boat taxi and go down to Corinth. But what he decided to do was not stay in Athens to build a church uh, in Corinth. What he did was he went directly to Corinth and he took up residence in this city. And it was an important city, uh, on, at least in part, because of its geography. It's known that uh, it's located on a little land bridge which connects the upper portion of Greece with the lower portion. It's about three and a half miles wide and about three miles long, and it's flanked on both sides by the ocean, which means it's dominated by its seaports, which means it's perfectly and strategically located to communicate with other places and to be a hub of commerce, and that's precisely what it was. It was a rich city. Politically, it had long been important. Politically, it had long been important. But one of the things you want to think about is that the city had been burned down 200 years before by the Romans because the Greeks had revolted. And it lay fallow and burned over uh, a, a rabble of stones and old buildings for about 100 years until Julius Caesar commissioned to have it rebuilt, let's say about 100 years before Paul walked in there. That means then that the city that Paul walked into when he came into the initial part of his missionary program there was a brand new city. Brand new. And it was a city that was bustling with commerce. It was also a city of a, of a significant population. Once the city had been rebuilt, it became sort of a magnet to that portion of the ancient world. And so people came to populate that city from all over. There were Greeks, there were slaves, there were Romans, there were uh, former soldiers there. There were businessmen, there were bureaucrats, there were Orientals. It was a place where you could say the world came to to repopulate. Which means then that if you reach somebody in Corinth, you had an entry point to take the gospel from whatever culture or place they had come from. It was significant. That's what I always say about L.A. If you reach people in L.A. and build people a church in L.A., you have a chance to reach the world because no one's from L.A. Barely ever do you come across people who are born and raised here their whole life. They're all from somewhere else. They're here for now, and they're planning on leaving to get rid of the taxes. So Corinth was one of these places where people weren't initially from, but they're there now. And if Paul can reach the strategically located city, then he can have quite an influence. But there's massive headwinds here. 
First of all, religiously, this is a city that is dominated by paganism. And it has one of the most vile reputations for gross immorality that existed in antiquity. In fact, there was a word word for sexual promiscuity, which was built off the word Corinth, which means to Corinthianize, which means to go into prostitutes. And as legend has it, according to the old Roman poet Livy, there were over a thousand temple prostitutes in Old Corinth. Now, that could have been part of the old city that was burned down, and that's quite possible. But there was a cultural legacy in a sense that continued. So, closer to Paul's time, there is one of the Romans that described Corinth as a city of licentiousness, a rip-roaring town where none but the tough could survive. It was not an easy place to build a church. And you read Paul's letters, you can see these people are always having a problem. It was a rough place. Dominated as it was by the powerful religion of the goddess Aphrodite, the god of seafarers, Melisertes, all kinds of minor deities. It was rank with idolatry. There were a few Jews there. There were a few Jews there, not a lot, because the city had been newly rebuilt and there had not been yet time to bring in a large population of Jews. But there were some, and as you'll see here in our text, there was a synagogue which Paul went into. But one of the things that I want you to take careful notice of, there were no Christians there. There was no church there. There was no support team there. There were no co-workers. And Paul was all by himself when he arrived. So that's the situation. I hope you get some sense of what it felt like to be enclosed in those city walls as Paul walks in there so that you have a little bit of thinking going on about why he was saying when he arrived there, he was with weakness and trembling and much fear. We come in now to what seems to have been the aim of the Apostle Paul. And it's not that hard to see. And I think it's important for us to see this. I'm going to backfill behind it in a moment what happened before he did this. But one thing I want to capture in your thinking here before we get to the process of how Paul laid the groundwork for this gospel mission was to see what uh, was his clear intention in coming there? What was his aim? And you see that in verse 4. He was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Why was Paul there? Well, he tells you very plainly here, Luke, he went there to reason, that is, to expound the Word of God. And when you hear that idea of him reasoning in the synagogues, at this point through our study in the book of Acts, we're well prepared to think about what that meant. Every single place where Paul went in his missionary journey, whether it was Salami or Pisidian Antioch or Iconium or Thessalonica or Berea, wherever he went, he went into that synagogue and he opened the Word. The other thing that you're told that he did here was that he was persuading. This is a word from uh, the rhetorical world. This is a word from the great Greek speakers of the day. This is what um, discourse is aimed at, to persuade, to change the mind, to captivate the will, to engage, to spark interest, to lead people from one point of view to another. And what you see here is that Paul was consumed with that. That's the tense of the verb. He was repeatedly trying to engage the hearts and minds of these Jews and these Greeks. In other words, what Paul's aim was, was to bring them some Jesus. 
The whole point in being in Corinth was to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who didn't have any hope. The whole entire point of being in Corinth was to preach the gospel of the forgiveness of sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The entire point of being in Corinth was to win people who were sitting in the barns and the chains and the darkness of their own sin. To win people who were experiencing the ravages, the corruption, the disappointment, the delusion, the despair of knowing nothing nothing but sin, that there was a way out of that, that there was a way of peace, that there was a way of reconciliation. There was hope for change through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the sense of purpose. That is the burden that he brought. What he aimed to do was take those people who were wounded, who were weary, who were heavy laden, who were suffering under the the weight of the mountain of all this false ideology and false religion and gross immorality and show them there was hope. And that was through Jesus Christ. Whether you remember anything else this morning, people of God, from this vast, important text of Paul's initial entry into the city of Corinth, I want you to be captivated by this single point. Paul came to a place where there were no Christians for the specific person purpose of turning on a light for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by doing that, he teaches us what the church is supposed to be doing. Don't ever forget that. By going to a place where darkness and unbelief and false religion prevailed and where gross immorality and materialism and decadence was everywhere, the apostle went there for a single purpose, to light up a lamp for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the church's calling. That comes straight from the head of the church, Jesus Christ. The last charge he gives is make disciples. See, so there's a reason for the church to be here. And this is exactly what Paul shows. This was his aim. He he aimed, he longed for, his purpose was to preach Christ so that they may be one to Christ and submit to Christ and build the kingdom of Christ. If a church doesn't believe that, it doesn't have a reason to exist. So here you have the aim. You have the place and you have the aim. What I want to do now is fill in what stands behind that because there's some rather interesting information that is included here in verses 2 through 3, which sort of provides a backstop and colors in what Paul was doing in order to get to this point where he could act out and execute this aim of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jews and the Greeks. And there's a real process here. And one of the reasons why I see there's a process here, and it's as simple as this, the word and, which begins verse 4. And. What does that signal? But sequence. Paul, or rather Luke, is narrating a story about what Paul did. The first part of the story is that uh, desiring to build a church 
in Corinth. He didn't stay in Athens with the few converts he had won and um, commute over to Corinth here and there to raise up a church. He jumped on a boat or he put on a rucksack and he got to Corinth and he, and he went there. The second thing that he did is what you find here in verses 2 through 3. And when that was in place, the next sequence in the step is he began to execute his purpose. That's how the story is told. He had to raise up a church from scratch. He's all alone. And so to do that, he built a foundation first. Let's look at it. I want you to begin here by noticing the first words in verse 2, and he found a Jew. He found. The first thing that I want us to notice here is intentionality. This word find is a word which implies intentionality. It means to seek after something which is lost. It is to seek after something that you may know is there, but you do not know its location. The only way to apprehend it is through diligent search and inquiry. It is the very word that Jesus uses in that famous uh, a parable of the hidden treasure when he says, the kingdom of God is like a great treasure. But how is the treasure obtained? Can a person just sit there and, and fan themselves with a fan in the shade and it falls into their lap? No, Jesus says that the, the hidden treasure, it's in a great field and it has to be found. And how is it found? It's found through diligent search and inquiry. This is precisely the language the apostle uses here, or rather Luke uses here, to describe what Paul did. He intentionally sought for something, And there are two things that he sought after, a job and a place to stay. A job and a place to stay. And at, at first glance, I acknowledge that doesn't sound very spectacular until you begin to piece it all together and see what happened. But before we can get into that, I want you to notice that Luke interrupts the narrative by sort of spotlighting two people here and a, se and a sequence of events which at first glance uh, feels like it's just an interruption, but it's really not. Notice that uh, you're told immediately that he finds a Jew. And uh, his name is Aquila, and his wife's name is Priscilla, obviously indicating to us they are a married couple. We are um, introduced to them in terms of their status. They're Jewish. More than that, they are immigrants. Notice here what it says, that they had recently come from Italy. They had recently come from Italy. They're not natives of Corinth then. Uh, Aquila was from Pontus, which is on the other side of the sea in Asia. At some point, he went to Rome. But notice that they have just come from Rome because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave. Now, virtually everyone agrees what this is about. Virtually everyone agrees that this is about the so-called decree of Claudius. Now, you may never heard of Claudius, and you may never heard of the decree of Claudius. But it's significant, so significant that it was noted by the Roman historian Suetonius, who tells us that in AD 49, Claudius booted the Jews out of Rome because they were fighting over a man named Crestus. In other words, the implication of it is that the gospel had somehow filtered its way into Rome, and when the Jews heard these Christians talking about this man Crestus, Christ, it sparked riots in the streets. 
The reason then why these Jews are being encountered by the Apostle Paul when he comes to Corinth is because they went to blows in Rome over Christ. Think about this. The one thing that I tried to sink into your thinking, which helped understand the insight into Paul's mind, I came with weakness and not self-sufficiency and self-reliance, is because he came alone. There was no one there. And as he looked at this monumental task before him, which was to raise up a church in the city of Corinth without a single helper in the world, he was overwhelmed. And yet here in the marvelous providence of God, it's as if God is just directing all things marvelously by His fatherly hand, instigating riots in Rome in the street between the Jews so that these believers, these Jews would be led to Corinth so that when Paul showed up, he would have somebody. He wasn't alone. God used the hand of a wicked king to lead co-workers to Paul. It reminds us this morning, people of God, we're never alone. We're never alone. One of the hardest things to think about in life is in the midst of my sorrows, my fears, my struggles, my doubts, my concerns, my great obstacles, my job, my family, all that is before me that feels too hard to figure out is I'm alone. Who's going to help me? Paul was alone. And yet by this invisible hand of God working and moving behind the scenes, Paul was setting out to find somebody. And in God's mysterious and marvelous providence, his hand had led him to the answer to prayer before he could even know it. We're never alone. You're never alone. Christ is with you. You're never alone. The Spirit of God is in you. You are never alone. The Father is always open to listening to your prayers. So here we have God's providence in action preparing the way before Paul, and He leads them to them. And it's a very interesting thing that you learn next. He found them and He stayed with them. That word stay is the same word that's used a couple of different places in this uh, portion of Acts that cover the missionary journeys. And what it means is it was a place of lodging for the purpose of building gospel mission. The last time you saw this was in Acts 16. After uh, Lydia was converted of the preaching of the Apostle Paul, she said, why don't you come to my house? And from there on, while Paul ministered in Philippi, that's exactly what he did. He used that house as the base of operations. And when he left, the last place that Paul said goodbye to was Lydia's house because the people of God had gathered there for worship. What Paul was looking for was a place not just to have a roof over his head and a dry place to roll out his sleeping bag. What he was looking for was a base of operations, a place where he could be and pray and strategize and think about how to build the kingdom of God. The next thing that you learn here is he found work. And it's very interesting the way in which Luke sort of heaps up a bunch of terms to emphatically drive the point home here that he was working. Notice this. We're told here that because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. And they were working, for by trade they were the tent makers. That's the Department of Redundancy Department, isn't it? 
I would have been fine with one. He found work. We got it. But in all of the rich and thick description here, he's driving home something quite significant about how Paul went about laying foundation for gospel mission. First of all, he had a trade. And the word here is a particular artistic word for a real skill. He wasn't just somebody, and there's nothing wrong with it, that worked in retail. That's a fine job if that's what God has called you to. But what he had was something very specific. He was a worker with leather. That's what tents were made out of. That's where riggings for ships were made out of. That's what saddles were made of. There was all kinds of utility in this trade. If he, if he had this trade, he had an ability to command a salary based upon his skill. The next thing you're told here is he shared that trade with both Aquila and Priscilla. Which meant that when he went to work, and we're told here they worked together, that after he found them, they went to work day after day. They lived in the same place. And all this time, they're having opportunity to talk to each other. You can only imagine that Paul uh, made use of every opportunity he had to, to speak about his life, to speak about his conversion, to speak about the things that he had been doing, and to speak about that thing for which he was in Corinth for which was the raising up of a mission for the kingdom of God. He's no longer alone. He has a community, and now he is multiplying co-workers as he sits there day after day and night after night, sharing the same quarters and sharing the same job. A door is being opened, not just with them, but for the rest of the community. We get a great insight from the Apostle Paul about the use of this strategy for building a church, at least in Corinth and perhaps other places. And what I'm thinking of here are those words that we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He states a general principle, for instance, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 9.19, he says, For though I am free of all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. See that? There is encapsulated the Apostle Paul's general missionary strategy. I have become a servant of others so that I might win. But where you get specific and how it connects into this trade business, look now at verse 22. Here's your window. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, that I may by all means save some. But here now is your window into what Paul was doing here with seeking intentionally after this trade. He was seeking to identify with the weak. And you say, who were the weak? The weak were the workers. The estimates vary anywhere between 75 to 90% of ancient society that Paul is dealing with here were made up of these people who were regarded as weak. They were the slaves and the servants and the workers and the serfs of antiquity. The rest, and there was just a small portion, had wealth and nobility or some sort of political status or were soldiers, and they didn't do that. And everybody who was in this upper strata uh, of people looked down on these workers and the weak. And here's what Cicero says of them. 
that they are vulgar and unsuitable are the gentlemen of occupations, all hired workmen for whom we pay for labor. All craftsmen, too, are engaged in vulgar occupations. He says again, the craftsmen are the dogs of the city. And they are regarded as coarsened in body and soul and manners. And another poet, Lucian, says that the laborers were just the swarming rabble, the weak. But Paul realized that if he was going to reach a city that was 75 to 90 percent full of weak people, that is laborers, he better get a job. And that's what he did. And why did he do it? Well, you don't have to guess. He said as plain as day that I might win those who were weak. Can I spotlight that word win for a moment? Sometimes you hear people think it sounds pious to reject that language of, oh, it's not right to say that we're winning people. It's like it's a dirty word or a tawdry word or a bad word or a humanistic word or a worldly word to say we're seeking to win others to Christ. Let's have you know Paul uses it. You're not being more Calvinistic than Paul if you say I'm seeking to win somebody. This is the Holy Spirit. He uses the word win to describe evangelizing the lost and winning them to Christ. So you're not more pious if you reject this language of seeking to win others. You're just wrong. So here you have Paul saying, I'm seeking to win. And how is he seeking to win? He's coming right next to them at work. And he's rubbing elbows with them at work. And he's talking with them at the coffee breaks at work. And he's hanging out with them when they're cleaning their tools after work. And he says, hey, if you're hungry, why don't you come over to my house for a barbecue? We'll just keep talking. The whole rationale was to identify with those who are weak in order that he may begin to have natural inroads of conversation with people about the very purpose and reason he was in Corinth for, which is to win people to Christ, to build the kingdom of God. This is intentional. I remind you again, the word he found means he intentionally sought He looked for a place to stay, which would be a launching pad for the kingdom. And he got a job using his skill so that he would identify with people who already shared a certain kind of like-mindedness. They shared a vocation. They shared the same place in the gutters and trenches of society. And he could identify with them. That's part of the backfill here behind Paul's execution of his purpose and aim. The second thing that I want you to notice here is bound up with this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. The second thing that Paul intentionally sought to do as backdrop, as preparation, as laying foundation for gospel mission was to multiply co-workers. Again, we come back to this couple here, Aquila and Priscilla. I don't really care if you know the name of their names, the meaning of their names. The one thing I would note, and it's a peculiarity, and it's worth just mentioning here, that virtually everywhere else you encounter this couple, the woman is named first. It's usually Priscilla and Aquila. Thus probably comes the name, she's my better half. 
because either it means that she was of a higher social class or standing than Paul, or she was just more gifted than he was. There's nothing wrong with it, men, if you feel like your wife's your better half. That's good. You're in a good spot. So she's regularly named before him. But the thing that captivates me about them is the word that Paul uses to describe them, co-workers. Now, it's not here in our text, but it's what Paul says of them in Romans 16, 3. He says, greet uh, Prisca, see the word order, Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ. Lots is important there. Before I get to that, just think about these people. In the very next verse, you know what Paul says about them? They laid down their life. They risked their neck for me. That's what he said about them. Which means that there was some imminent, terrible, violent death which was before them, and they were going to risk it for Paul's sake. They're sold out. The other thing we know about them is everywhere you find them, they're hosting a church in their home whether it's in Ephesus or whether it's in Corinth or whether it's anywhere else, we always find that they are, they are hosting a church in their home. And another thing we learn about them is that they were good at breaking down the gospel so that people could get it clearly. One of the clearest examples of that is in our own text in Acts 18. You look down at verse 26, and you'll notice they took a man named Apollos aside, who Luke says was mighty in the Scriptures, an eloquent man, and they took him away privately and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They, I mean Priscilla was there in the conversation. And here's what Calvin's comment is on that, just so you know that he believes that she was involved. Calvin says, It's a mark of Apollos' modesty and humility that this mighty intellect and zealous man was willing to receive instruction in the Christian faith from a woman. Exclamation point, he says. What does a co-worker do? They're able to explain the way of God more accurately. They're able to explain the gospel. Come back into your text here. He calls them co-workers. One thing I want to make clear here, you know they're co-workers because the text tells you they shared the same trait. But what he says is they're co-workers in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the orientation that he is speaking of. And no modern liberal commentary, commentator Matthew Henry from the 17th century said their co-working was about private instructions and conversations which were for the furthering of the success of Paul's public preaching. Co-working. Private conversations, private instructions to further the gospel. As Calvin looks at this, he says it's no small honor it's no small honor heaped up upon Priscilla that Paul would call her his co-worker. She was involved. This is what he is doing. There's no accident here that you're told who they are in large terms because uh, the rest of the Word of God expels out what they were. They were these co-workers. And one of the things you might be asking this morning, well, who is a co-worker? I thought that was a, a minister of the Word. Well, it can be. I can show you examples where it's used of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, people we were nowhere ordained. But you know what? I can show you tons of examples in the New Testament where that word co-worker refers to non-ordained people who are members of the church, both men and women. So don't tell me that it's about uh, ministers of the Word. It's not. 
It's a generic term, which means somebody is working the gospel. The best way I can illustrate that for you is you turn over and you see it for yourself in your own Bible, Philippians 4, verse 2. I want you to see this for yourself because I want you to understand what Paul is up to here in his preparing the way for executing his aim or purpose, which was gospel ministry. And and what he had to do was embed himself in that community, start making the contacts, prepare the way for this gospel ministry. He's all by himself. He he needs help. He needs supporters. He needs co-workers. He's multiplying them here. That's what this is all about. One thing I want to show you, at least this is what a co-worker is. I urge Yodia and I urge Santike to live in harmony with the Lord. Indeed, true companions, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow co-workers. Notice three things here with me, huh? Number one, they're women. Paul says it. Yoda and Santike are women. Number two, Paul unambiguously, clearly, and explicitly calls them fellow workers, which is soon ergos co-worker. Okay? Co-workers. Just like Priscilla and Aquila, just like Trephamus, just like a long list of people you can find in the New Testament, non-ordained members of the church. But I want you to notice something else. Paul says these women shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. A particular kind of participation is in view when he describes them as co-workers. He said... They struggled. Do you know what word that is? You probably don't because you don't you didn't read your Greek Bible this morning. Athlete. Athlete. And it, and it means perseverance, discipline, struggle, working together in spite of opposition. It speaks of the most intense, intentional kind of participation in something. Expending all your effort. They were women, they were non-ordained, they were members of the church. We don't know who they were. They could have been part of that circle of ladies that we met when we met Lydia by the waterside where it says that she was with a handful of other women, which was the place outside the town of Philippi where Paul engaged in lots of mission. It could well be they were part of that group. Which always makes us laugh because the Macedonian vision is this picture of some burly man begging for Paul to come over to Macedon and help. And the first people he converts are ladies. But the point here is you're to take from this text is those who are involved in gospel mission and building the church are not simply ordained ministers or elders. They are people who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who long to see the kingdom of Christ flourish, to see the lost come to know Him savingly. And they have a real participation here. You couldn't see it any more intensely. They shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. Hyvel Jones, the great Scottish Presbyterian commentator, says they are warriors in the cause of the gospel. John Calvin, how about that this morning, people of God? From the testimony in which he gives in their favor, they were very excellent women. He assigns to them so much honor as to call them fellow soldiers of the gospel. Co-workers. You see why Luke spends so much time here 
in preparation for getting to the execution of mission on Aquila and Priscilla because they were his co-workers. He showed up with no one. There was no church. There were no helpers. There were no Christians. He was alone. And he sought people intentionally to stay with, to work with, and to cultivate, to be his co-workers so that what? He could raise up mission. Why does Paul speak about all this? Because this is what needs to happen for mission to go forward. Surely on one hand we could agree with Calvin that one reason he mentions it is because he wants to thank them. I get that. But Calvin goes on to say another reason why he brings it up is so that people who had been engaged in mission but now aren't would be resuscitated unto it again. That they would be revived again. But I can't help but believe there's a third reason is because Paul wants more of it. We learn here how the church is built. We learn how gospel mission is unleashed. It's through the public ministry of the Word. Not one single person doubts that. The whole Word teaches it. But how else does it happen? It happens through you. It happens through co-workers. People like Yodia and Syntyche and Aquila and Priscilla and Trophimus. And the laundry list of people in the New Testament are called co-workers in Jesus Christ because they love to see the gospel flourish. So it can't be said this morning that members and believers don't have a role in gospel mission. It cannot be said that, not from the Bible. It's ignorant and wrong to say so. It's ignorant and wrong. It's false to say that you don't have a role. Men and women, ordained and non-ordained, it's open to all who desire to help see the kingdom flourish to be a part of it. And so Paul came to Corinth with weakness and fear and much trembling. He was all alone. He had a great mission in a vast city. And what did he do? He embedded. He sailed from Athens to Corinth. He intentionally sought a place to stay. He intentionally sought a job. And he intentionally built up a team of co-workers so that he could execute mission. Verse 4, he was reasoning every Sabbath and trying to persuade both the Jews and the Greeks. Don't worry about the clock. We started late. But I'm going to give you a few applications. We're out. Number one, what do you learn from this? Number one, what you learn is that God uses means to raise up gospel mission. What do you learn from this? You learn from this that God uses means to raise up gospel mission. Paul didn't uh, arrive in Corinth and sit under a shade tree and hang up a shingle and say, well, you know, if anybody comes, that's great. I'm here. No, he intentionally used means. He intentionally applied himself to means. I'll talk about them in just a second. But you cannot miss the fact that he intentionally applied himself to means. He prepared a foundation, and then he began to execute his mission. And so what that tells us is it's wrong to say. It's just false. It's flat wrong to say that if God wants people to get saved, he'll do it himself and bring them. Surely he will, but that doesn't absolve us of the duty as a congregation to apply ourselves to means. 
We must apply ourselves to means because we know from Paul's own example here that's a precisely what he did as he sought to raise up gospel mission. He applied himself to means. The Bible teaches it. You can't speak against it. You're wrong if you do. He uses means. He uses you. He uses humble things. That's the second thing I want to say this about this. God uses ordinary means. And I'm struck by the simplicity and the ordinariness of these means, which so obviously were blessed by God. He took a place in the city. He wanted to reach people in the city of Corinth. He moved to the city of Corinth, number one. Number two, he, um, he said, build relationships. That's what he did. He built relationships. He found the Aquila and Priscilla. He built relationships with people at work. And God used those. And then, uh, you know, he prayed. That's very obvious. But I I want us to, to be clear about the simplicity, but yet the importance of humble means. They're what God uses. Work. Location. Relationships. It's within the reach of everyone. And the third thing I take away from this, it's a note of encouragement. God sustains His mission. Remind yourself this morning of Paul's statement. I came here with what? Weakness, fear, and trembling. A city dominated by idols, very few Jews, no Christians, no helpers, no workers, no family, no friends. Nothing but failure behind him. What would happen to the church? What would happen to mission? What would happen to the kingdom of God? What would happen to this vast city of people that didn't know their right hand from their left spiritually who needed to be saved? What would happen? Would it fail? No. What we learn here is a story of encouragement. That is, the apostle applied himself to the means... The Lord granted the harvest. As the apostle applied himself to the means, the Lord gave the harvest. What is that? It's encouragement for the church. It's consolation for the church. It's confidence for the church. That as we labor, as we take up the means, as we pray, as we seek first the kingdom of God, we have a great confidence. All these things will be added unto us. Father, we thank you for a story which illustrates profound truths and records great historical moments of faith to be a means of teaching your church. And so, Lord, as we see the Apostle engaging in that great mission uh, to the world in the city of Corinth, aiming to captivate hearts and minds with the gospel. We thank you that you showed us the very means and process by which you use in order that it might be a lamp to shine upon our way so that we would have understanding, so that we would be led to have confidence in the things which you have appointed. Simple, humble, ordinary things. Appeal, O Lord, to the hearts and minds of your people that they this morning would know that there are no castaways All volunteers are welcomed and desired because what you do is you use ordinary people with the love of Jesus Christ to do great things for the kingdom of God. And when a church applies itself to that, O Lord, 
Let us be reminded that you give the victory. And so, Father, bless us with these words. Encourage us as your people. And be pleased to raise up your kingdom in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.